Listeners, start your engines. Franchise Detours, episode 17. Rob here. Find more episodes of this show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other podcatchers, as well as crookedtable.com. If you can leave us a rating and or review in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to this right now, really appreciate it. It'll help get the word out. A lot of fun stuff in the works for 2022, so stick around for that. On this episode, Megan Kearns from Spoiler Piece Theater joins us to talk about Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. This was a really fun conversation, and Megan had a lot of insight about this franchise, which as you're learning, listening to this mega series was pretty new to me, and it was fun to sort of unpack the evolution that George Miller takes these films down, which we'll get into very shortly. So let's listen to a little bit of the trailer and then jump into our conversation about Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. The world had been through a trial by fire, and only the greatest warriors and their deadliest enemies emerged from the flames. Who are you? Nobody. No, mister. I can feel it. The dice are rolling. <laughs> he was the one they called mad. But he's just a raggedy man. But to those whose lives hung in the balance... Where's the waiting ones? Waiting for what? Waiting for you. He was the one they called hero. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, dying times here. Now, Mad Max is back in Beyond Thunderdome. Welcome to Franchise Detours, where we believe no movie series travels in a straight line. On this episode, we're continuing our our journey by road through the desert of the Mad Max franchise, and we're moving on to the third entry in the series, and this is 1985's Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, and I'm honored to welcome to the show what Megan Kearns of Spoiler Piece Theater. Welcome to the show. Hi, thank you so much for having me. I'm so excited. And yeah, of course. So tell people that that don't know about your show and how dare they. Um, <laughs> tell them, shame. tell them, for shame. <laughs> tell them who you are and and what your show is all about. Sure, I am the co-host of Spoiler Piece Theater. We are a podcast that's been around for oh god, I think eight years, and we come out every week. And we do not care about spoilers. We do not let it get in the way of good conversation. So I do that every week, and then I also write film reviews for Edge Media Network. Awesome. No, I love that that you guys own the the we don't care about spoilers thing because that's such a <laughs> yes. point of anxiety for for us who who talk yes. about movies on the regular. Every time you see something, you're like holding back and self censoring. <laughs> Am I allowed to say who's in the new Spider Man movie? Right. Am I allowed to talk about the Matrix or whatever big Oscar <laughs> movie is like at the moment? So it's it's uh, yeah, it's I like that. That's just upfront. You're like no, your spoil- spoilers are happening. Brace yourself. <laughs> Uh, it's very refreshing yeah. and, uh, and a, a big relief for me as a, as a, as a listener. <laughs> it's freeing. It's very freeing. And we never spoil anything on social media. We're very respectful. That's great. Because we know you want to go in and, and you want to consent to being spoiled. Oh, so, exactly. 
<laughs> so because everyone has a different opinion about this, what when would you consider spoiling on social media is allowed, is like passable? Like what is the, the statute of limitations? Uh, well, so I Since you're an expert on spoilers, I figured I'd have you here. <laughs> well, Clear something yeah, up yeah. for us, Megan. <laughs> well, I am actually an outlier amongst many critics and amongst my co-hosts. I do not think that the statute of limitations ever ends. I think you could... I do not think people should be spoiling anything really without a warning. So, yeah, no, yeah, that's, so that's good. Good rule of thumb. Citizen Kane, yep, that's still spoiling. I don't care how <laughs> old it is, still a spoiler. <laughs> no, that's fair. That's fair. I can't tell you how many movies I've gone back to see, like classic movies. And I, and so you watch Citizen Kane, for example, and you're like, oh, yeah, Rosebud, that's just uh, spoilers. I won't, I won't say it here, but that's his, this thing. <laughs> Yep. And because you've see, heard about it or the big twist in Psycho or The Sixth Sense right. or any of these big movies that have famous twists, I just knew them going in. I think the a fun one was, I, I've done an episode uh, a couple of years ago, I think, on Fight Club. And I when I saw that for the first time, I knew about the twist, but I forgot about it. So when it happened, I was still like, oh yeah, this is the movie where that's ha- that happens. I've completely forgot. So that's always fun when you you trick yourself into forgetting the spoilers. Has that ever happened to you? Exactly. Yeah, I'm actually really good at dodging spoilers. It's it's a very useful skill. (laughs) It is a very useful skill. Trust me, it's come in handy more times than I can count. But on the flip side, I'm going to contradict myself. I also don't think that knowing spoilers, if it's a great film, I don't think it necessarily hinders your experience watching the film and it can certainly enrich it. So there is that too. (laughs) <laughs> yeah, no, I agree with that. If if an, if a film is lives or dies by knowing how it ends, it has zero replay, replay value automatically. And yeah, probably that's all it has going on. Probably, yeah, just a gimmick. <laughs> so moving into the Mad Max, yeah, I saw you you tweeted something about Beyond Thunderdome, and I was already had the wheels turning that I was going to do this franchise. I actually did a Twitter poll, and I had four slots that I was scheduling and. And most people picked Evil Dead, which edged out Mad mm-hmm. Max. So I was like, all right, well, Mad Max is next up then. That was my rule. <laughs> it was such a close margin between those two four film franchises. So you, you tweeted something about Beyond Thunderdome. Clearly, this is a movie that, that you love. What was your introduction to the Mad Max franchise to begin with? So the very first film I saw in the Mad Max franchise was Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome. And I saw it when I was six years old. And so that got me hooked on it. And I was, I love a post-apocalyptic film. I love these characters. I love this setting. I I love everything about this film. (laughs) And that just drew me in. And I also love Fury Road. I think it is incredible. It's a masterpiece. I also do enjoy the other two films, not quite as much. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the original, which I know is very different because most people love the first one. They love Road Warrior because it's so weird. They're so violent and they are and they're great. I just like three and four much more myself. Okay, that's fair. No, I'm I'm noticing all these weird parallels between the Evil Dead franchise and the Mad Max franchise. <laughs> Both started like late 70s, early 80s, right? The first one was obscure. Second one made it more yeah. cult film. Third yeah. one is the only real entry point that anyone can get away with watching at such a young age. <laughs> because this one is, you know, which we'll get into the first PG-13, Army of Darkness, 
is uh, it's R, but it's a light R. Like it's, it's a soft it's, R. Yeah, it's it's yeah. That's the movie a lot of people my a lot of people grew up with ten or twelve whatever watched that and then we realized there were other movies and then Long Gap and then a remake slash reboot slash sequel follow up in the in the two thousands slash twenty ten you know two thousand ten. So I, that's interesting. I had I I was suspected that might have been the case. What does this movie bring to the franchise? What do you think, looking back now and having seen the pic, full picture of the Mad Max franchise, where does this take it? Is this, I guess, in, in any in a more uh, in a more blatant way of putting it in Hollywood terms, is this Mad Max selling out? Because I think I could see some. <laughs> I could, not that I feel that way, but I, you could, that's the thing you hear nowadays. No, that's the argument. Whenever, I've, I've heard it yeah. many times. Yeah. Whenever, you know, <laughs> this is the first one that's funded by Hollywood. Warner Brothers is behind it. You get a Bugs Bunny reference in the film and everything. It's Tina Turner's in it. It's PG-13. There's a lot of, oh, this is Mad Max going mainstream. What do, what do you say to people when they are like, oh, Beyond Thunderdome, that's, that's where it sort of fell off? Because they know this is generally the, the the least well-regarded, I would say, like critically. Would you agree with that? Yeah, it's still like, if, depending on how you consider Rotten Tomatoes, if you still look at the score, it still has an 80% right. score, which is still a fresh score. So it is still oh, yeah, for sure. claimed. Roger Ebert famously had this as the four out of four stars. He, this was his top, one of his top films of 1985. This was one of his top films of the 80s. So clearly there is love for this film. And yeah. as I've gotten older, I have known more critics who do actually enjoy this film. But yeah, I'm, again, I'm I'm very much an outlier because most people think that this is, it is, it did become too mainstream. It's sold out. I think that's absolutely absurd. I was like, I want to be like, have you watched the film? Like, it's <laughs> weird. It is. It full-on embraces its weirdness, and that's yeah. what I love about it. Yes, it is a softer, gentler film because there's kids in it, sure. But I think it's a really fascinating story because there's still the chase elements. There's still car chases. Mm -hmm. There's still fights. There's still death. There's still violence. But there's more humanity to it. There's more mm -hmm. of a story going on. So for me... I find it really fascinating because there's there's more of a story. There's more stakes going on. I don't think this is selling out at all. It's still an Australian production. It's still very firmly a George Miller production, even though it was, you know, co-directed by George Ogilvie because of Byron Kennedy's tragic right. death. But yeah, no, I do not think that this sullies the franchise or is a low point in the franchise at all. But I do know many people think that because... The first two are so just raw and violent, which is great, too. I love that, too. I love that about Fury Road. Like, I'm always excited when there's an R-rated film. But it's interesting when you talk about accessibility because that, and you're you're not wrong. You're right. It is much more accessible by being PG-13. But that's funny to me because that's not why I saw it. Because I was watching <laughs> R-rated movies and anything violent from an extremely <laughs> so. That had not, so for me personally, that had nothing to do with it. It just happened to be on TV. And so I saw it. <laughs> right. It sounds like, it sounds like George Miller, it was his decision to tone down the violence and make it more PG-13. It wasn't what you would see nowadays, a studio mandate. Be like, this is, we right. need to sell this to kids. Give me, <laughs> give me a PG-13 diehard movie or, or yeah, right. whatever. Terminator and like all these other franchises that are that are <laughs> sci-fi futuristic really raw 
RoboCop is another example. But then speaking of RoboCop, like this comes out in an era where this is 85. <laughs> RoboCop is a couple years later. They had a Saturday morning cartoon based on that show. And like, <laughs> so clearly that wasn't a concern back in the day with Hollywood. It's, it does seem like it was more of a thematic decision and a narrative decision on, this, on the part of George Miller and George Ogilvy in that it does involve children. It's supposed to yeah. round out the trilogy and and Max rediscovering his humanity. A lot of yes. carnage doesn't really go hand in hand <laughs> with that message. So, no, I totally feel you. I think that that makes a lot of sense. But it's 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 a criticism that this movie takes often. And I, they, I thought mm-hmm. it was best to just address that up front. Oh, totally. And like I said, I get why people think it. I get where they're coming from. I just don't happen to subscribe to that line of thinking. But I, I totally, totally get it. Yeah. Yeah. And this, like I, I mentioned to you right before we started recording, the only one of these films I had seen prior to doing these episodes was Fury Road. So going back and rewatch watching all of these now has been interesting because you really see the the earmarks of how this this franchise is is constantly yes ending itself every movie. It starts off yes. there's this cop and there's this post lawless land and it's like teetering into post apocalyptic landscape Mm -hmm. and then you're full on in it in the second one and then it's more world building in the third one and yet Fury Road has all the elements of the previous three it amps them up with the design and the style and all the other stuff that people will hear about next episode but it's I thought it was a funny a funny comparison while I was watching this I was like Oh, okay. So these movies are basically like the, this is a really weird comparison, but like the Saturday Night Live character, Stefan, where it's just like, (laughs) he will say like, New York's hottest club is Barter Town. It's this place has everything. Tina Turner, (laughs) (laughs) the Lost Boys, like never like, like there's so much, all these different elements that you're like, they don't seem like they belong, but that's just, they're very, they're very much vibe movies, I think. The plot is Max wanders into a situation, has to figure his way out of a situation, and then keeps <laughs> walking. And that's that's the vibe of these movies. It's an interesting setup for a franchise. It doesn't really build on itself so much. They're more like almost side quills that they're oh. like, you know? I don't agree, actually. Oh, okay. Here, well, you're the expert. Like I said, I'm discovering. No, this no, 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 no. Going on. <laughs> no, 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 no. No, I think I, I actually, I mean, like... What you're saying initially, I'm like, yeah, yeah. But then, but then I'm like, it took a turn. Actually, yeah, there was a turn, and maybe it was my turn. Maybe it was your turn. I don't know. But I realized, no, I actually don't agree. I think, but I think that is the brilliance about this franchise is that the way George Miller constructed them, and he was so focused on the visual storytelling, which he is so incredibly talented in doing, is that he wanted as he wanted minimal dialogue, especially in. Mad Max 2 and in Fury Road, he wanted people to be able to just watch them and not have to speak the language. And they are so incredibly visceral in their visuals, which is great. And you can really access them in a way of like, oh, Max is just stumbling into these scenarios because he is. I think, though, watching all four of them, there definitely is a progression. And for me, the interesting progression is it's not, you can argue it's Max because yes, he comes into his humanity. And like initially, when he's introduced to the kids, he's very brusque. He's very aggressive. Right. And when they go out on the trek to get the kids back, 
the littlest kid. He's like, he carries his own. And then literally the next scene, he's on his shoulders and he's hauling him around. So clearly he has much more of a heart in that scene than he's letting on. So he does have a progression and he does have a character arc. But where I think the progression actually stems from, from the very first one, all the way through the second, third, and then to Fury Road, is I think it's an evolution of a feminist journey. And I think it shows George Miller's... It shows George Miller's, his burgeoning feminism and his growing awareness and how he infused so much of that into Fury Road. And I just think that as the films go on, the women characters become more autonomous. They have more agency. They're more compelling. They're more interesting. And by the time we get to Fury Road, it's Furiosa's story. It's not Mm -hmm. Max's story. He's just a sidekick in that story. Yeah, no, I noticed that too here from from the first one going forward. That the first film, it's mainly Max's wife who's there to get killed, basically. Yes, yes, she's bridged for his development. (laughs) Exactly. And the kid, which again ties into his connection with all these children. He goes from losing his own kid and now he's like Peter Panning it with like an army of children (laughs) by the end of this. It was very, I did get, again, watching this the first time now for this episode, I did get Hook vibes watching this because I have a 90s kid. I was like, oh, so Hook is, Hook just wanted to be Thunderdome, the second half of Thunderdome, basically. With with Robin Williams instead of Mel Gibson. And then the second one, Road Warrior, there were some strong female characters there leading like that village there. And then in this movie, you have Tina Turner. We should talk about Tina Turner now. Oh my God, uh, yes, can we? <laughs> Auntie Entity, which is like the, the coolest character name. What are your What are your thoughts on on what that character brings to it? And now that we're talking about the feminist progression and evolution of this franchise, obviously that leans directly into Tina Turner's character. So, <laughs> yeah. so talk a little bit about what she brings to this movie and and her character. Well, that's probably the reason I watched this film because I, as a kid, I idolized and was obsessed with Tina Turner, like absolutely obsessed. And I think this is one of the most fascinating characters who is an antihero, antagonist, whatever you want to call her. I don't call her a villain. I don't consider her. I wouldn't call her that. Yes. And I've seen that. Like there was an article, a 35th anniversary article calling her a ruthless villain. And I'm like, that's not true. She's not a villain. She's ruthless, but not a villain. But yeah, but I find her absolutely fascinating. And because, and many of the characters in this film do this, but she particularly does this within the first 30 seconds. You're like, oh, I know everything about this character. Mm -hmm. I know everything I need to know about her. And she had, Tina Turner imbues the character with so much gravitas and charisma and magnetism and power. And I could just watch an entire movie of her (laughs) in this role. She's just so amazing. And she's dramatic. And I just, I love it. And it's very clear that she is scrappy and she has clawed her way to the top and has had to fight for everything she has. And I'm just here for that. I'm here for that journey. And I love watching her in this role and just relishing it. I'm not even sure watching it. I'm like, is is that Tina Turner acting or is this just Tina Turner? Because I was, I just assume this is how Tina Turner is. Jenny, like, <laughs> minus the murder, obviously, but like the vibe and like the power and the strength that she brought, she brings the same presence to her, to this movie that she does to her music and her entire career. And I think that's, you could look at this as 
stunt casting, but I feel like if it is, it's stunt casting that works. <laughs> totally. The thing I think that's interesting, though, is because she was asked that in an interview, like, is this just you? And she's like, no, absolutely not. I'm completely different. And having watched multiple interviews with her and her documentary that came out recently, she does seem like a very different person. Like, this definitely seems like her persona, maybe, like mm -hmm. her performance yeah. persona, but not who she is. Right. Although she certainly had a tumultuous life and had to struggle in that regard. But mm -hmm. yeah, but it is interesting because George Miller had her in mind when they were writing the script for this. And he's like, oh, but we'll never get her. And then they <laughs> did. And I'm like, that's amazing because it is perfect casting. <laughs> it's also the first Mad Max movie that has the two more than Mel Gibson at the, you know, two people, the names yeah. up top above the title, which I thought was interesting, yep. too. And, uh, and again, speaks to what you were saying as far as the progression of this franchise. Now you have a female co-lead, essentially. Yes. She's not in long stretches of this movie, but when she's in it, like she's clearly the one everyone remembers to the yes. point I had not seen this movie and I knew about the Thunderdome, two men enter, one man leave. Like I knew <laughs> about that part, which is why when, when the second half of the film goes beyond Thunderdome, literally... I I was just like, wait, what is happening? Where are we now? And I, it was a, it was jarring for me as a viewer. Uh, it's jarring. It's like, why are we back in Thunderdome? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, because they spend so much time ingratiating you in that community and yeah. and Matt Blaster and like how things work in Barter Town. And so mm -hmm. previous movies would have just hung out in that space. Yeah. Uh, and I and I think it's it's telling that this film steps beyond that to to a whole other situation where you have these survivors of a plane crash and it's like cult that that's developed after the fact where they've deified the captain of the plane it's <laughs> i think i think that it's all really it's all really interesting in the way that they that the way that that dovetails back to to thunderdome again these movies are all very vehicular so it's very much like yeah. from point a to point b and then from point b back to point a yes 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 yeah, it's very clear that George Miller was heavily influenced by car culture from a very early age. And he said that in an interview that when he was a kid, it was car culture was huge. And because all of his films seem to have that very linear progression. <laughs> yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I like I love the the world building in here. We get like, Ew, I, yes, we, we have when we got to the point where obviously everybody's bartering, trading everything. It's the name of the town after all. And Mad Max's post-apocalyptic setting feels like it was inevitable that there would be a gladiatorial arena storyline. I feel like that that thing just fits perfectly in, in this film. But when we got to the point where where we find out about the methane plant and literally that it's powered by pig shit, I was like, oh, <laughs> amazing. Well done. <laughs> <laughs> it's that visceral, like, like nasty, like gritty realism that that uh, that George Miller brings to these films. Where you're like, yeah, that that sounds about right. That's probably how people would figure out how to survive. What are what are your thoughts on on the way that this pushes the? Because we get little bits and pieces of what happened previously and how they're all in this in the wasteland now. Do you think this film pushes that? I guess the reality of that situation further yeah i mean the second one is certainly pushing that too obviously because you're seeing communities and you're seeing them vying for control of petrol so you're seeing that too but yeah i definitely think that this one is pushing the limits of that as well because it's interesting that we see two different community very different communities 
Like we see Barter Town, we see their system of laws, we see how they deal with justice, we see how they deal with currency. And it's really, really fascinating. And then we see the children's cult, which, yes, is like a religious cult. And that's mm-hmm. also fascinating because what would a bunch of kids do if they were abandoned and left alone to fend for themselves? And their language is really different and their customs are really different. And so I think that's interesting to see because something that can at times be, I think, a flaw in sci-fi and post-apocalyptic and dystopian works is that everything is the same. There's a uniformity. And here we don't see that. We see divergence. We see variance. And that's how it would be. And so I think that that's great. So I definitely think that this pushes that. I think we get little snippets about what happened from the kids and their lore talking about Captain Walker and from Auntie Entity talking about the day after I was still alive. Like, so we get these little snippets of it, which I think is great. Yeah, there's that frag- fragmentation that, and uh, <laughs> Toe Cutter and uh, Barter Town and Immortan Joe all coexist in just like different corners of this <laughs> desert that Max just stumbles onto and usually gets attacked or captured by one of these people and then has to fight his way out. That's, 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 yeah, that's pretty funny how, how that happens to him constantly. And I did think generally this movie felt like, at least up to this point, this feels like it has more of a sense of humor about this world yeah. than, than the previous two, than Fury Road. Like it's, we'll get next episode to the, the Doof Warrior and how, how, much, how much that dude rules in Fury Road. But, but here we have like the, the, like we said, the pig shit thing. And like, there's just a, a, a little bit of, a little more playfulness to this one. I don't know. Mm-hmm. Why do you, what do you think is the intentionality of bringing that in? Do you think it's, because it fits with the thematic of the film, or is it is it the co-director Ogilvy bringing that side of that element of it? Because it feels like it it's another way that this franchise takes a little bit of a turn there. Yeah, I think you're I think you're spot on with your questions. I think actually your questions are actually answers because I think it's partially thematics, partially to show the humanity and the progression of Max, partially because of the kids. But also, I think a big, the big, big thrust of it is Ogilvy because, and not that they didn't overlap, but from what I've read and how their their duties were delineated, George Miller worked more on the action sequences and Ogilvy worked more on the dialogue and working with the actors as far as coaching them and, and collaborating with them on their dialogue. So that would make sense as to why there's a bit more lightness, a little more levity, more humor than perhaps the previous entries. So yeah, I think you're right. I think you hit the nail on the head. Not enough Bruce Spence though. I will say that's one thing. <laughs> I would have liked more Bruce Spence. I think he's he's obviously a real he's obviously a real standout in in the Road Warrior. Yeah. And and popped up in famously he had a huge 2003. He was in uh the deleted scene for Return of the King. He's in Finding Nemo and then oh, yes. something else. I think the Matrix Revolutions. <laughs> like he was just everywhere that year. I, although I think most of his movies just worked in Australia and that's how that happened. And he's just <laughs> such so. a, a known quantity as a character actor. And, and we get a little bit of the, of him in this, not yeah. enough, but it, it also wow. continues that tradition of George Miller has like his returning players that can mm-hmm. come back again and again in different, usually in different roles. We have uh, you keys burn in the next one who from the original film and bookending those kinds of things. And I, I really like the, 
the 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 supporting players in this movie. I think Master Blaster is is such a is such a an interesting idea for a character in this film. Yeah, big guy with the little guy on top. It's it's like that joke you always say here, where like, oh, th- that tall person in a trench coat is really just two little kids on top of each other. <laughs> it's that's like very, that's very it's Bojack like, Horseman. <laughs> it is. It is. It is. It's it's like a post apocalyptic version of that. Yeah. This guy's the muscle. I'm the brains. I just hang out on his shoulders. And and we run things together. And what what are your what are you even see even Master Blaster that character has a little more of a the concept of that character is a little more playful in and of itself than something like Toe Cutter or or <laughs> Humongous where they're a little like more menacing. Do you know? Yeah, I never I can never not laugh at Toe Cutter because what a name. <laughs> I know. Yeah. <laughs> Would, would Master Blaster be the closest thing this movie has to a air quotes villain? Because I, I, we agree that anti-entity is too awesome to be the villain. <laughs> She's way too awesome. Yeah, I think that's the interesting thing that this film, in a way, doesn't really have a straight villain. Like, right. maybe Iron Bar, maybe. <laughs> but even not necessarily. So maybe Master Blaster is a villain. But that's the thing. People give it. They'll be villains in certain situations, and then they're not. So because he starts off as the villain, certainly, but then once Blaster, wait, how many spoil can we can we do spoilers? Are we doing yes, so we're no we're, okay. we're doing embracing spoiler piece theater. Hey! MO. <laughs> well, this is also like a 30-something year old movie. It's like that get with true. it, guys. It's on HBO Max as of this recording. So just I go know. check it out. Even though I did say there is no statute of limitations on spoiling, I'm going to spoil this. I don't care. But yes, like, so when Blaster dies, Master becomes much more humble. Like, he transforms into, like, a different person. Mm -hmm. Yeah. it's He's not as intense and intent on mocking people. And I don't know how he had this epiphany all of a sudden. I don't know if it's the fact that Iron Bar lowered him into the pile of pigs. I'm not sure, but he definitely transforms into different into a different person. So he's not necessarily the villain that he originally was. But yes, I definitely think in the beginning of the film he is certainly positioned as the villain. But it well, and even even Blaster becomes a, a sympathetic character, of which course. Max unmasks him, and yeah. and yeah, and and all that. I think it, it's it, I loved what what you said about this franchise and its feminist evolution. So I'm going to keep coming back to it. Oh yeah, I love it. (laughs) Because this movie, it it feels like it's building weirdly because there's 30 years in between these two films, but it feels like it's building to Fury Road in that it feels like the villain in this is the system or the patriarchy more pointedly in in Fury Road. But I feel like it's this movie already is, it has that notion in play. Yes. Yes, definitely. I think that patriarchy and capitalism are the villains yes, in this yeah. movie. Yeah. <laughs> like definitely. without question. And and again, that's the same thing in Fury Road. It is the capitalist exploitation of women's bodies and other people's bodies in Fury Road. So yeah, it is just a continuation of it. And also, of course, you can't shake the warning of the eco warning of we're destroying the planet. So there's that too. Right, right. Nuclear, there's some, I think there's some nuclear war that happens in between where everybody's fighting over fuel and water and resources are scarce. And I can't imagine what the relevance is for today's world. <laughs> no clue. <laughs> um, 
But yeah, so this is obviously supposed to, apparently supposed to be set long after Road Warrior. I, I don't know yeah. if, I, 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 my research said like 15 years or so. I think there's supposed to be a few years between the first two and then 15 years or so. I don't know if that's why Max's hair is significantly longer and graying and why <laughs> Mel Gibson is like two seconds away from turning into Martin Riggs for, <laughs> for, for his next franchise of films. But do you, do you think, I feel like we've touched on this this already but do you feel like this works as a a trilogy capper like if if fury road didn't exist and this is the last time we see max obviously he's you can watch these movies individually as we said they're standalone adventures yes they are they literally announce max entering the arena as the man with no name which i thought was a really really obvious tip of the hat but i thought it was so but i love it I don't uh, care. I love the nod to your Jimbo. I love the nod to the, the Dollars trilogy. I don't care. It's brilliant. Don't yeah. care. Love it. It's also the th- the only one to really try and contextualize this with within our world, which yeah. I think is interesting. Trilogies tend to go full circle back to the beginning. And mm-hmm. it's to quote, I think, uh, Scream 3, <laughs> where they're like, <laughs> They, these like, there's some truth about things that, that you, there's some new information comes to light in the film that you didn't have before that changes the way you look at things a little bit more. I think in this, when Mad Max starts, things are already on the down. They're spiraling out of control. Road Warrior, obviously, is like this film, framed as a fairy tale narrated by, a, uh, narrated by another character. In that one, it's the feral kid. Yeah. And here, Savannah, being yeah. like ending, ending it that way. Being, Let me tell you a story about a long time ago. We met this guy and he changed our life. And and he's just kept walking, weirdly. But here we get the Bugs Bunny toy, which I thought, again, Warner Brothers, I get it. Uh, but yes. then we get, you know, glimpses of actual cities. And yes. uh, they arrive in a worn out, destroyed Sydney at the end of the film. And so, yes. so how, how, what are your, what do you, does this work as a trilogy ender? Had there not been Fury Road, first of all, and what, what is it about that, that those reveals that makes it, makes this that is so integral to this to this story that this movie's telling. So, I think it's it's interesting that I'm the one answering this since most people start with either Road Warrior the first one and I started with this. So, I think that's interesting, but I for me personally, yes, I do think it is an excellent trilogy capper. I think if there was no Fury Road, oh, but that breaks my heart because Fury Road is action. But if there was no Fury Road, I do think that it is a solid ending. Now, is it as dark and bleak as the other two? No, definitely not. It has a much more hopeful, ambiguous ending. But I like that. I like ambiguous endings. I like ending hopeful without it being too neat and pat. So I really like that. I really appreciate it. And as far as seeing Sydney, seeing a destroyed Sydney, um, which, by the way, those miniature, that miniature set is amazing. Like, it's incredibly well done. Yeah, I really liked seeing that too. Because, and I do think it, it in a way brings it full circle because we start off the films and yes, society is deteriorating in the very first one, but we're seeing him and he is still a cop. He is still entrenched in civilization and society as we know it. And things just unravel rapidly, which is where Road Warrior goes. And then Beyond Thunderdome goes. So I think coming back to the cities and seeing them broken, but seeing them a semblance of being rebuilt or being repopulated. I think it gives a a 
closure in the sense of coming full circle, like, oh, here's society and it's falling. Oh, well, here's the rebuilding of society or here's trying a new way of society. And so for me, it works on multiple levels. Yeah, I I, I completely agree. I think the first two movies, it's very, it's easy to write it off or like, okay, they're in Australia technically in some time. And it's it's removed from our world to an extent mm-hmm. because all you mostly what you see are like deserts and and uh, more primitive more primitive civilizations that were more recently created, not cities, not you know not civilization as you put it. So it's I think it, it does put in gives you perspective on what the price of of everything that that humanity has done, like what it what what it has really wrought. You see that yeah. again. Not to keep bringing up Fury Road, but it's hard. It's like a shadow that stands over all three of these movies. We're like, oh, so this is the culmination of everything yeah. the other three movies were trying to say. But there's a there's there's I think the 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 wives lead a message in one of the chambers that says, "Who killed the world?" Mm-hmm. And that like it, it's it's the end of it's the it's that classic sci-fi commentary of Planet of the Apes style. Like you blew it up. Look what you've done. You actually did it. It's it's that deal. And then I think that's Mad Max putting its stamp on that. Yes. Yes. It is definitely a condemnation of our societal flaws, which I think is great. But I don't, I think it's so hard to separate these from Fury Road, even though yes. doing that, just because George Miller just gets better and better and better as he goes along. And and each film, he was learning and the mis- like with the first film, he's not really happy with it in many ways. And so the second one was him fixing his quote unquote mistakes. And mm. I think that just you see that progression. And I think that's why Fury Road is as good as it is is because he took everything he has learned from every single film he's done. And he has such a varied career. And I think that's just why Fury Road is just so magical. Because it is just the culmination of everything, not only in just the Mad Max franchise, but just everything that he's done as a filmmaker. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's, it's wild to think that this film came out, it, it, it was the end of the franchise for 30 years. In the meantime, he went on and did, I think Witches of Eastwick might have been next after this. He did yes. the Babe movies. I know he didn't direct the first one, but he was involved in producing and writing, or I forget, one of the two. And uh, the Happy Feet won an Oscar yep. for Happy Feet. He has an yes. Oscar for Happy Feet, not for Mad Max Free Road. I don't think. Yes. Like a lot of his production <laughs> team has Oscars for Mad Max Free Road. Yes. But he's got one. He's just going to scratch out Happy Feet and write Mad Max Fury because that's, <laughs> that's what he should have gotten it for. 30-year 30 30 gap, which is wild to think. And, and you see that jump in skill, that jump in, in narrative, that jump mm-hmm. in, in visual effects and stunt work yes. from this film to that film. But yeah, to, to, mention, to go back to what you're saying earlier, the, the, the miniature set at the end Really impressive. All the that's that's the other thing these movies constantly get right is the stunt work, the fight choreography, yes. the practical effects, like all of it holds up yes. and it makes it feel more real because it is real because there wasn't CGI, <laughs> there wasn't. And I think that's that's part of why 30 years from now people will see Fury Road and be like, wow, that still holds up in a way mm-hmm. that CG from Five years ago, two years ago, you're like, eh, that's a little rough. <laughs> well, yeah. that's what's so interesting. You're totally right. That's what's so interesting with Fury Road because there is CGI, very minimal, and it's mm-hmm. done very much in tandem with practical effects. But right. George Miller said that he could not have done Fury Road if he hadn't done Happy Feet. 
and I think worked on Babe too because of the CGI and the animation that those required. And I think that that's so fascinating that that working on those films helped him get the effects he wanted for Fury Road. Like, that's just, that's great. Right. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I love that. Imagine, imagine a studio or a filmmaker not constantly churning out new installments of a franchise because it's like, eh, I'm not ready yet. We're not right. there. I'll wait a couple more decades and then and then I'll fire it back up and and we'll we'll bring Max back back into this. Obviously without Mel Gibson, but that's for a variety of reasons. And people here next next time when when we talk about Tom Hardy, I think Mel Gibson's a whole other conversation in and of itself of, of himself. But what do you I guess we should briefly touch on what do you what do you think of his performance in these movies and just what he brings to Max since he did originate this part? Yes. So for me, Mel Gibson's a scumbag. And yeah, nobody's debating that. <laughs> well, the thing of it is, I, the reason why I say that, because I actually have had people push back on, with me on this, because for me, and this is just for me personally, I cannot separate the art from the artist. Right. I don't try to. I just can't. It's not my thing. Having said all of this as a disclaimer, yeah, I think Mel Gibson is really great in this role. I think he does a fantastic job wordlessly acting and his use of body language and when he is speaking, his tone of voice. I think he's great. I think he's really a great action actor and I think he's very physical and I think he's very great as this character. So yeah, it's unfortunate that he's such a jerk because right. does, does that great part. How, how does that color your, your experience going back and watching it? Especially since these movies are as we said, a feminist journey. And then you have this very not feminist actor at the center yeah. of it. Irony, first of all. And secondly, does that take away from the experience or are you just trying to be like, nope, that's Max, not Mel. Moving on. <laughs> it's both. Yeah, it definitely colors my perspective watching. And I do have, it does taint my enjoyment mm -hmm. a little bit. It's I don't enjoy it quite as much as I used to because of that, unfortunately. I also really enjoy George Miller. And since Mel Gibson, thankfully, is not the filmmaker in this, that also makes it easier. The right. fact that Tina Turner is so amazing, the fact that Helen Boudet as Savannah is so great, and all the other supporting actors, I try to focus a little bit more on them. But yeah, it is unfortunate to say that for me, it's not as an enjoyable of an experience as it used to be because of that. So right. yeah. Yeah, that's true. I, I do think that, like you said, the the supporting cast in these movies always. It's because that he goes with mostly character actors or unknowns. It makes it feel even more lived in because you're not yeah. like, hey, Robert Redford or whoever <laughs> just randomly. He's toe cutter. Interesting. I'm, I'm casting an alternate version out of no, out of nothing. Uh, I even though that toe cutter. I want to see Robert Redford as toe cutter now. <laughs> I'm trying to think who, who would have been at in the time. That's having Tina Turner again. That's why it, that's why it stands out as as potential stunt casting because you're like, there's Mel Gibson. And Tina Turner and a bunch of other people. And, uh, but she holds, like we said, she holds her own. She's a great, she's great in this movie. One of the best characters in the franchise, I think, easily. And, oh, and the fact that everyone else is, is, are new to us, I think it really, except for Bruce Spence, who I already, yeah. I already touched on. But yeah, that's, it, it's the world building that these movies do is so astounding. Is there anything particular, any callbacks or references or fa favorite moments in this movie you want to, you want to highlight before we start moving to the back to the the big picture of this franchise. Oh my God, there's so many. <laughs> but I will, but I definitely want to touch on the world building because yeah. you've mentioned it a few times and it is so exceptionally well done. 
And what I really noticed rewatching it this time, because I just recently rewatched it for the, I don't know, the 200th time, who knows? <laughs> um, I really have watched this movie so many times. I tend to watch it like about once a year, once every two years, if not more. Um, but yeah, watching it this time, watching the opening when Max is walking into Barter Town, that is so fascinating because you get so much will- world building in just the first few minutes. And there's not a lot of dialogue. There's hardly any. You're just seeing people getting tattoos. You're seeing somebody get shaved. You're seeing somebody try to sell water that's filled with radioactivity. <laughs> yeah. It's just, it's fascinating just watching what's going on in the background. And it just feels like such a richly built, really lived in world in such a short span of time. And that is extreme talent as far as I'm concerned when it comes to visual storytelling. So it's just, it's really great to see that. There's also some really funny, like not funny, funny, but amusing lines of dialogue I love. Like I love Pig Killer, which by the way, that name is ridiculous, but (laughs) describes who he is. But when he says, Mr., I feel the dice rolling. Like I just, I always (laughs) love that. And Oh, I don't know. There's just there's a, there's moments like that. Like I love when Tina Turner is welcome to another edition of Dome, and she's talking about death is listening, and oh, I love it. And the MC and his flamboyance, I love it. There's so much theatricality in this, and I'm just here for it. <laughs> yeah, no, no, there totally is. There totally is. And then you get not only the world building in the on the entrance to Barter Town, but then there's clearly this is a system this is a society with laws that i guess anti-entity wrote herself as she says at one point which i think is awesome and there's the 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 three conditions about of the deal and two men enter one man leave they all Mm -hmm. very much a a hive mind when it comes to certain roles in barter town Yeah. yeah yeah go ahead I was going to say, yeah, I read this really fascinating article that was at the AV Club that talked about the language and the development of language in Bartertown and with the lost tribe of the kids and how in Bartertown, everything's like a rhyme, like bust a deal, face the wheel. They call her auntie. Yeah. Like it's like it's got a very nursery rhyme feel to it. And I was like, oh, that's so fascinating. And it like breaks things down to these like media slogans. And it almost feels like it is a media commentary because you mentioned that the Thunderdome is very gladiatorial, which of course it is, but it also feels like this is their TV show. These are their soap operas, you know? And then when they're doing the, when the kids are doing the tell and they're holding like the stick with the square and they're moving it on the pictures, yep. it's, it's like a camera. It's, it's the like first that. iPad is what yeah. it is too. <laughs> just like, let's watch this, everyone. Right, right. And then I love that they have like the viewfinder to show Sydney and Captain Walker and Supposedly Mrs. Walker, which I'm going to say now. (laughs) Yeah, but I love that. So there's this like undercurrent of media commentary too happening. And you're right, like going along with hive mind because the kids are doing it too. They repeat everything they hear. And it, it is just interesting, the lack of individuality throughout most of these communities. And you see these figures like Savannah, who's very headstrong and very defiant and wants to truck mm-hmm. out. And Max is very defiant, of course, and Auntie Entity is too, and has her own agenda. And so it's just, it's interesting seeing these, these moments of individuality and expression happening amongst this uniformity. And oh. everybody's trying to fuck the system in this movie, basically. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Trying, to, yeah. trying to get their own. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Which is, which is really, I feel like that's in a way what Mad Max is all about. Like these movies are all about that thing. 
trying to survive, trying to scramble for power, resources, control, et cetera, et cetera, in the wasteland. That's how we live in the wasteland. (laughs) That being said, that's actually a decent segue. What What do you feel like is the legacy of the Mad Max franchise, I guess. What does it contribute to cinema, its genre, which I guess is action, sci-fi, like this is also, also this franchise is multi-genres in a lot of ways too. Yeah, because it is definitely sci-fi, definitely action with its chase sequences. And that's the thing, like Fury Road and, and the chase sequence at the end of Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome are my favorite car chases in Duel, but that's a whole other conversation but anyway but yes i so i I think this has multiple legacies this franchise has had such a huge huge impact on pop culture and cinema especially the notion of because it's pertinent to this film especially the notion of thunderdome and the fact that thunderdome has become part of our lexicon Mm -hmm. (laughs) like and it's just sprinkled throughout so many various things like tv series and and whatnot so I think there's there's that element of it, the incorporation into our culture. But I also think the notion of, and, and Mad Max is not unique in this because as we said, it has references the man with no name in many other films, many other stories. But I think that notion of a lone wanderer doing the hero's journey, who's maybe a, not a traditional hero, who's maybe an anti-hero. Yeah, I think that's very common in so many of our stories. But I think that this is doing it exceptionally well. And I think what is interesting about this, and we keep coming back to this, is the progression of how its commentary is on society and its depiction of women, too, which I think is different than many other franchises or post-apocalyptic or sci-fi stories, except perhaps maybe the the Alien franchise, because, of course, Ripley is an amazing, iconic character. And Sarah Connor. But anyway, but I digress. (laughs) No, and it's, I think it's, it also, I think, helps the longevity of this franchise in a way because the progression is thematic and not yes. necessarily narrative. Yes. Like, yeah. Because you could pick up, like, you saw this not knowing it was the third movie in a franchise. I saw Fury Road and then now have gone back and rewatched yes. the, and watched the other movies, caught mm-hmm. up with it. Everybody can have a different entry point and it's all valid. But it's yes. not until you watch them sequentially that you're like, oh, I see how. The world is growing, the perspective of the filmmaker and the values yeah. that the movie is trying to get across, all of that is is evolving as time goes by. And I think that's right. an, interest, an interesting way of, of having it be threaded together, not feel mm-hmm. like individual adventures, but still have it feel like individual adventures right. where you can <laughs> flip around on TV and be like, oh, Road Warrior, I've never seen this one or whatever. <laughs> and then... Just right. jump into it, not having to know every move because every movie establishes his backstory. His family was killed, blah, blah, blah. And they move on. Just, just like mm-hmm. the basic origin. Bruce Wayne's parents were murdered. And right. so they, that's the bare minimum that you need. Everything's messed up. His family died. He doesn't care about anything but himself. And he wanders around. That's all mm-hmm. you go. And then you can <laughs> jump into any Mad Max movie with that base knowledge. And I, and I think that's an asset in this case, that that it is that, as we said, accessible. Minus the R rating. If you're, <laughs> if, you're if you're too young, I wouldn't, I'm not saying people should, I'm not saying people should be like, because I have a five-year-old in the other room. I wouldn't be like, hey, let's watch, let's watch Road Warrior. Like, I uh, even though the feral kid and the boomerang, that's pretty badass. I love that it. is pretty badass. <laughs> yeah, but it's funny that you mentioned Bruce Wayne and I'm actually so glad you did because yeah, it is very much a superhero 
story, like origin yeah. because of his family. And it get but by this film and even the second one, it's like, does that backstory matter? And for him as an individual character, of course it matters. But does it matter for us as an audience? Or can we still just be along for the ride and see where he's going and see how he's helping these communities? And so there is a superhero element to him. And there's that there's that moment in Road Warrior that I thought was so interesting that I think it's Papa Giallo who's just like, oh, what is it? You lost your family? Something, something <laughs> like He's just like, we've all lost stuff. Like, move on. Like, right. you know, there he confronts him about it. He's like, yeah, we all have baggage. We're all sad. And this, obviously, look at the world we live in. That doesn't mean you shouldn't stand for something. Look at, right. we're, civil, we're, 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 we're still people or whatever. And like, mm-hmm. look at you out there with this garbage, you're nothing. Like that was one of the more, <laughs> it was a really like, one of the few scenes that's really gotten to the heart of this character's ethos yeah. in that way, like so directly. And I thought that was, it was really powerful for, for that, the film to take on that aspect of the character so, so aggressively. Mm-hmm. In that mm-hmm. film. Yeah, because it is interesting, especially I think nowadays where there's so many films and TV series that are that are tackling trauma and tackling yes. individual trauma. But I think what's interesting about this is that it definitely starts with individual trauma, but then it expands to collective trauma. And that's kind of, that's a more interesting. They're both interesting. We need to contend with trauma, of course. But I think it's interesting to look at what does collective trauma do to people and how mm-hmm. do different people deal with it and how do we come together or not come together to tackle this? So I think that's something that this franchise does very interestingly and very well. Which is why seeing the wrecked Sydney brings home that theme. Mm-hmm. That, that look, we've all been through this catastrophic event and we're all just trying to make our way. And yeah. I think that that's an interesting point for, for the initial Mad Max trilogy to end on. Uh, ah, but it also is a great segue into Furiosa because she's is. such a fascinating character and yes. dealing with so much trauma too. So yeah, it's oh, it's just great. <laughs> now is the point of the show. Normally I, I ask like, does this deliver on its predecessor? Is it a smooth ride or a wrong turn? I think we know the answer to that. Obviously, <laughs> this is one of those, this is one of those franchises where all, all like the way I feel about Evil Dead, where all four of these really interesting, would recommend jump on any one and then figure it out. Like you'll, you'll, you're in good hands. But I, I have to ask you, Megan, for your ranking of the Mad Max franchise from bottom to top, top to bottom, whatever you prefer. Ooh, okay. So for my top, I have to go with Fury Road just because it's so brilliant and wonderful, but very close behind for me, Beyond Thunderdome. And then hmm, one or two are the same for me. I will give, but two is weird and I always like weird. So I'll give two yes. and then one. So, so four, three, two, one. Yeah, so, so the movie with Toe Cutter is the least weird. That's interesting. Well, yeah. <laughs> I'm not trying to make you second guess your ranking. I just, you no, know, that comment like, earlier about Toe Cutter. I was like, no, they're all pretty weird. They're all pretty weird. I think, I think it's the difference is the Road Warrior does the world building better than, yeah. than the first one yeah the first one is just like look there's this gang they're wandering around i'm a cop trying to hold it together right i lose my family i'm sad the end and then the second <laughs> one is like look at this world look at this this guy west disaster and, and his mohawk <laughs> and look at this kid with his boomerang and and this other guy with a gyrocopter what's a gyrocopter i don't know but it looks cool Who the hell knows i have to say these films are so impeccable in their costuming and hair design i love it it just they're just bold and they just go for it again going going back to my stefan thing this place says everything gyrocopter <laughs> violet <laughs> like all kinds of stuff yeah. um but yeah, no, that's that's I feel like 
I haven't done all these episodes yet, but I feel like Fury Road is gonna is gonna walk away with this with this one pretty handily. But but like it's we said, so that's good. It, it's so good, and it feels like the it, the ultimate, the quintessential Max movie. Like because it, it has all the elements of the other three combined and and enhanced. I would say for 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 the fourth film in a franchise. Which I have a I have a a theory that the fourth film of a franchise is always always does does something really wacky with it, whether it's a prequel, a sequel, a spinoff, a sidequel, a, <laughs> a, a new genre, like something crazy happened. And and I think Fury Road fits that because of how different it is from what came before. But yeah, so no, this was this is this was so much fun talking about this movie. Like I said, going back for me to go finally see these three films, which like we like you said, I knew about Thunderdome. I knew that the, the I knew the like slogan behind it. Yeah. I was very well aware of the first half of this movie, not so much the second, but uh, <laughs> that's how ingrained it is in in pop culture that that I hadn't even seen any of these three, and I I had at least the the starter kit for Beyond Thunderdome uh, <laughs> locked and loaded before I fired yep. this up. So thank you so I, much, Megan. Go, sorry, go ahead. No, I was just gonna say Thunderdome is just so amazing. How could that not be just burned on your brain? Right. You know. <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. But I'm so glad. Thank you so much for having me. I was so excited to talk about this film and to talk about Mad Max. So thank you. Yeah, absolutely. Thanks for coming on and to, to, uh, to join us for Beyond Thunderdome. Tell people where they can find you on social media. Yes, you can find me on Twitter at OpinionSWorld. You can find me at MeganKerns.com. And you can find me at SpoilerPiece.com, my podcast. Excellent. Thanks again, Megan. This was so much fun. We'll have to get you back on either this show or my other show, Close Watch where we'll, we'll talk about a movie of your choice. We'll have to, we'll, we'll sort that the details later, but this was a blast and I'll definitely have to reconnect with you and sometime soon. Love it. Thanks so much. <laughs> thanks, Megan. Big thanks to Megan Kearns for coming on to discuss Mad Max Beyond Thunderdome, an interesting detour in a franchise that seemed like it was heading one direction, but as we all know, George Miller likes to deliver uh, surprises, especially when it comes to this franchise. So I want to know, what did you think about Beyond Thunderdome? I know The Road Warrior is a lot of people's first movie uh, in this franchise. For me, it was Fury Road, which we'll find out next uh, episode about. But uh, Beyond Thunderdome seems like it has a special place in, for some people. So let me know, what are your thoughts on Beyond Thunderdome? You can reach me on Twitter at Crooked Table, same handle on Instagram and via email, robert at crookedtable.com. For now, that's a wrap on another Crooked Table production. We'll be back next episode with the finale of this mega series, finding out what the guest consensus is here for the Mad Max franchise when we discuss Mad Max Fury Road. See you then. This has been a production of CrookedTable.com. All rights reserved. That's the yard of the little KED.